It was one of those old houses you see from time to time, standing off the road, across the field, out toward the country, the roof mostly gone, windows sagging and empty, peering at you over a half-rotted porch as you drive by. It's hard to believe that anyone had ever lived there, but according to my great-grandfather, it was the house he was born in. His excitement grew as we pulled onto the bare dirt track that led to the house. The car was still rolling when out he popped and was moving as fast as his cane would let him up the stairs and through the black hole that served as a door. Following as fast as we could, we too crossed the threshold and came to a sudden and abrupt halt, like hitting an unseen wall. In the gray light filtering through the dust, we could see the back of an old wingback chair, grimy and tattered, facing toward the fireplace on the far wall of the room. There was no sign of great-granddad. Try as we might, we could not move forward. A voice seemed to come from the depths of the wingback chair. Don't worry, you'll have him back safe and sound. But first, you must listen to my weird wonder stories from a time long ago. When I'm done, just step back and leave. Great-grandfather will be found sleeping in the car. And we did. This is a story about second chances. The Girl Who Trod Upon a Loaf by Hans Christian Andersen You quite likely heard of the girl who trod on a loaf so as not to spoil her pretty shoes, and what misfortunes this brought upon her. The story has been written and printed, too. She was a poor child, but proud and arrogant. People said she had a bad disposition. When but a very little child, she found pleasure in catching flies, pulling off their wings, and making creeping insects of them. She used to stick maybugs and beetles on a pin, put a green leaf or piece of paper close to their feet, so the poor animals clung to it. Then they turn and twisted as they tried to get off the pin. The maybug is reading now, little Igna would say. See how it turns the leaves? As she grew older, she became even worse. But she was very pretty, and that was probably her misfortune, because otherwise she would have been disciplined more than she was. You'll bring misfortune down upon you, her own mother said to her. As a little child, you often used to trample on my aprons. When you're older, I fear you'll trample on my heart. And she really did. Then she was sent into the country to be in the service of some people of distinction. They treated her as kindly as if she had been their own child, and dressed her so well that she looked extremely beautiful. However, she became even more arrogant. When she had been in their service for about a year, her mistress said to her, You ought to go back and visit your parents, Aligna. So she went, but only because she wanted to show them how fine she had become. But when she reached the village and saw the young men and girls gossiping around the pond, she saw her mother sitting, resting herself on a stone nearby, with a bundle of firewood she had gathered in the forest. Igna turned away. She was ashamed that one dressed as smartly as she should have for a mother such a poor, ragged woman who gathered sticks for burning. It was without reluctance that she turned away. 
Another half year went by. You must go home some day and visit your old parents, little Ignis, said her mistress. Here's a large loaf of white bread to take them. They'll be happy to see you again. So Igna put on her best dress and her fine new shoes. She lifted her skirt high and walked very carefully so her shoes would stay clean and neat. And for that, no one could blame her. But when she came to where the path crossed over marshy ground, there was a stretch of water and mud before her. She threw the bread into the mud so she could use it as a stepping stone and get across with dry feet. But just as she placed one foot on the bread and lifted the other up, the bread sank in deeper and deeper, carrying her down till she disappeared entirely. Nothing could be seen but a black, bubbling pool. That's the story. But what became of her? She went down to the marsh woman who brews down there. The marsh woman is an aunt of the elf maidens who are very well known. There have been poems written about them and pictures painted of them. But nobody knows much about the marsh woman, except that when the meadows begin to reek in the summer, the old woman is at her brewing down below. Little Ignis sank into this brewery, and no one could stand it very long there. A cesspool is a wonderful place compared to the marsh woman's brewery. Every vessel is reeking with horrible smells that would turn a human being faint, and they are packed closely together. Even if there were enough space between them to creep through, it'd be impossible because of the slimy toads and the fat snakes that are creeping and slithering along. Into this place little Ignis sank, and all the horrible creeping mess was so icy cold that she shivered in every limb. She became more and more stiff, and the bread stuck fast to her, drawing her as an amber bead draws a slender thread. The marsh woman was at home, for her brewery was being visited that day by the devil and his great-grandmother. The latter was a very poisonous old creature. She was never idle. She never goes out without taking some needlework with her, and she had brought some this time. She was sewing bits of leather together so she could put them in people's shoes so they would have no rest. She embroidered lies, worked up into mischief and slander thoughtless words that would otherwise have fallen harmlessly to the ground. Yes, she could sew, embroider, and weave, that great old grandmother. She saw Igna, then put on her spectacles and looked at her again. That girl has talent, she said. Let me have her as a souvenir of my visit here. She'll make a suitable statue in my great-grandchildren's antechamber. And she was given to her. Thus, little Igna went to hell. People don't always go directly down there. They can go by a roundabout way when they have the necessary talent. It was an endless antechamber. It made one dizzy to look forward and dizzy to look backwards, and there was a crowd of anxious, exhausted people waiting for the gates of mercy to be opened for them. They would have long to wait. Huge, hideous, fat spiders spun cobwebs of thousands of years lasting over their feet, webs like foot screws or manacles which held them like copper chains. Besides this, every soul was filled with everlasting unrest, an unrest of torment and pain. 
The miser stood there, lamenting that he had forgotten the key to his money box. Yes, it would take too long to repeat all the tortures and troubles of that place. Igna was tortured by standing like a statue. It was as if she was fastened to the ground by a loaf of bread. This is what comes of trying to have clean feet, she said to herself. Look at them stare at me. Yes, they all stared at her with evil passions glaring from their eyes and spoke without a sound coming from their mouths. They were frightful to look at. It must be a pleasure to look at me, thought little Igna. I have a pretty face and nice clothes. Then she turned her eyes. Her neck was too stiff to move. My, how soiled she had become in the Marsh Woman's brewery. Her dress was covered with clots of nasty slime. A snake had wound itself in her hair and dangled over her neck, and from every fold of her dress an ugly toad peeped out, barking like an asthmatic lapdog. It was most disagreeable. But all the others down here look horrible, too, was the only way she could console herself. Worst of all was the dreadful hunger she felt. Could she stoop down and break off a bit of the bread on which she was standing? No, her back had stiffened. Her arms and hands had stiffened. Her whole body was like a statue of stone. She could only roll her eyes. But these she could turn entirely around, so she could see behind her, and that was a horrid sight. Then the flies came and crept to and fro across her eyeballs. She blinked her eyes, but the flies did not fly away, for they could not. Their wings had been pulled off, and they had become creeping insects. That was another torment added to the hunger, and at last it seemed to her as if part of her insides were eating itself up. She was so empty, so terribly empty. If this keeps up much longer, I won't be able to stand it, she said. But she had to stand it. Her sufferings only increased. Then a hot tear fell upon her forehead. It trickled over her face and neck, down to the bread at her feet. Then another tear fell, and many more followed. Who could be weeping for poor little Igna? Had she not a mother up there on earth? A mother's tears of grief for her erring child will always reach it, but they do not redeem, they only burn, and they make the pain greater. And this terrible hunger, being unable to snatch a mouthful of the bread she trod underfoot, she finally had a feeling that everything inside her must have eaten itself up. She became like a thin, hollow reed, taking in every sound. She could hear distinctly everything that was said about her on the earth above. But what she heard was harsh and evil. Though her mother wept sorrowfully, she still said, Pride goes before a fall. It was your own ruin, Igna. How you have grieved your mother. Her mother and everyone else up there knew about her sin, that she had trod upon the bread and had sunk and stayed down. The cowherd, who had seen it all from the brow of the hill, told them. How you have grieved your mother, Igna, said the mother. Yes, I expected this. I wish I had never been born, thought Igna. I would have been much better off. My mother's tears cannot help me now. She heard how her employers, the good people who had been like parents to her, spoke. She was a sinful child, they said. She did not value the gifts of our Lord, but trampled them underfoot, 
It will be hard for her to have the gates of mercy open to let her in. Well, they ought to have brought me up better, Igna thought. They should have beaten the nonsense out of me if I'd had any. She heard that a song had been written about her. The haughty girl who stepped upon a loaf to keep her shoes clean. It was being sung from one end of the country to the other. Why should I have to suffer and be punished so severely for such a little thing, she thought. The others certainly should be punished for their sins, too. But then, of course, there would be many to punish. Oh, how I am suffering. Then her mind became even harder than her shell-like form. No one can ever improve in this company. I don't want to be any better. Look at him glare at me. Her heart became harder and full of hatred for all mankind. Now they have something to talk about up there. Oh, how I am suffering. When she listened, she could hear them telling her story to children as a warning. And the little ones called her the wicked Igna. She was so very nasty, they said. So nasty that she deserved to be punished. The children had nothing but harsh words to speak of her. But one day, when hunger and misery were gnawing at her hollow body, she heard her name mentioned and her story told to an innocent little girl. The girl burst into tears of pity for the haughty, clothes-loving Igna. But won't she ever come up again? the child asked. She will never come up again, they answered her. But if she would ask forgiveness and promise never to be bad again? But she will not ask for forgiveness, they said. Oh, how I wish she would, the little girl said in great distress. I'd give my dollhouse if she would come up. It's so dreadful for poor little Igna. These words reached right down to Igna's heart and almost seemed to make her good. For this was the first time anyone had said, Poor Igna, and not added anything about her faults. An innocent little child has wept and prayed for her, and she was so touched by it that she wanted to weep herself. But the tears would not come, and that was also a torture. The years passed up there, but down below there was no change. Igna heard fewer words from above. There was less talk about her. At last, one day, she heard a deep sigh and the cry, Igna, Igna, how miserable you have made me. I knew that you would. Those were the dying words of her mother. She heard her name mentioned now and then by her former mistress, and it was in the mildest way that she spoke. I wonder if I'll ever see you again, Igna. One never knows where one is to go. But Igna knew that her kindly mistress would never descend to the place where she was. Again a long time passed. Slowly and bitterly. Then Igna heard her name again, and she beheld above her what seemed to be two bright stars shining down on her. They were two mild eyes that were closing on earth. So many years had passed since a little girl had wept over poor Igna that the child had become an old woman and now was being called by the Lord to himself. At that last hour, when the thoughts and deeds of a lifetime pass in review, she remembered very clearly how as a tiny child she had wept over the sad story of Igna. That time and that sorrow were so intensely in the old woman's mind at the moment of her death that she cried out with all her heart. 
My Lord, have I not often, like poor Igna, trampled underfoot your blessed gifts, and counted them of no value? Have I not often been guilty of the sin of pride and vanity in my innermost heart? But in your mercy you did not let me sink into the abyss, but did sustain me. Oh, forsake me not in my final hour. Then the old woman's eyes closed, but the eyes of her soul were open to things formerly hidden, and as Igna had been so vividly present in her last thoughts, she could see the poor girl, see how deeply she had sunk, and at that dreadful sight the gentle soul burst into tears. In the kingdom of heaven itself she stood like a child and wept for the fate of the unhappy Igna. Her tears and prayers came like an echo down to the hollow, empty shape that held the imprisoned, tortured soul, and that soul was overwhelmed by all that unexpected love from above. One of God's angels wept for her. Why was this granted her? The tormented soul gathered into one thought all the deeds of its earthly life and trembled with tears, such tears as Igna had never wept before. Grief filled her whole being, and as in deepest humility she thought that for her the gates of mercy would never be opened, a brilliant ray penetrated down into the abyss to her. It was a ray more powerful than the sunbeams that melt the snowmen that boys make in their yards, and under this ray, more swiftly than the snowflake falling upon a child's warm lips, melts into a drip of water. The petrified figure of Igna evaporated. Then a tiny bird arose and followed the zigzag path of the ray up to the world of mankind. But it seemed terrified and shy of all about it, as if ashamed and wishing to avoid all living creatures. It hastily concealed itself in a dark hole in a crumbling wall. There it sat, trembling all over, and could utter no sound, for it had no voice. It sat for a long time before it dared to peer out and gazed at the beauty about. Yes, there was beauty indeed. The air was so fresh and soft. The moon shone so clearly. The trees and flowers were so fragrant and the bird sat in such comfort with feathers clean and dainty. How all creation spoke of love and beauty. The bird wanted to sing out the thoughts that filled its breast, but it could not. Gladly would it have sung like the nightingale or the cuckoo in the springtime. Our Lord, who hears the voiceless hymn of praise, even from a worm, understood the psalm of thanksgiving that swelled in the heart of the bird, as the psalm echoed in the heart of David before it took shape in words. For weeks these mute feelings of gratitude increased. Some day surely they would find a voice, perhaps with the first stroke of the wing performing some good deed. Could this not happen? Now came the feast of Holy Christmas. Close by the wall a farmer set up a pole, and tied an unthreshed bundle of oats on it, that the fowls of the air might also have a merry Christmas and a joyous meal in this the day of our Savior. Brightly the sun rose at Christmas morning, and shone down upon the oats and all the chirping birds that gathered around the pole. Then from the wall there came a faint, Tweet! Tweet! 
The swelling thoughts had at last found a voice, and the tiny sound was a whole song of joy as the bird flew forth from its hiding place. In the realm of heaven, they well knew who this bird was. The winter was unusually severe. The ponds were frozen over thickly. The birds and wild creatures of the forest had very little food. The tiny bird flew about the country roads, and whenever it chanced to find a few grains of corn that fell in the ruts made by the sleds, it would eat but a single grain itself, and called all the other hungry birds that they might have some food. Then it would fly into the towns and search closely, and wherever kindly hands had strewn breadcrumbs outside the windows for the birds, it would eat only a single crumb and give all the rest away. By the end of the winter, the bird had found and given away so many crumbs of bread that they would have equaled in weight the loaf upon which little Igna had stepped to keep her fine shoes from being soiled. And when it had found and given away the last crumb, the gray wings of the bird suddenly became white and expanded. Look! There flies a sea swallow over the sea, the children said when they saw the white bird. Now it seemed to dip into the water. Now it rose into the bright sunshine. It gleamed in the air. It was not possible to see what became of it. They said it flew straight into the sun. The End And on the way home we heard great-grandfather mumbling in his sleep. Such marvelous stories, he said. Such marvelous stories. I haven't heard these since I was a child. And he promptly fell back asleep.